Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a pair of pastor scholars study a scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope that it will be enjoyable and edifying for all, as well as equipping for pastors or teachers who are working on sermons or lessons for the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I'm Spiritual Engagement Coordinator for Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. And my guest this week is Brent Strawn. Brent is a professor of Old Testament at Duke Divinity School in North Carolina, uh, having taught at uh, Emory University and the Candler School of Divinity there uh, for nearly two decades. Brent is a widely published author. He has scholarly works. He has more accessible works that anybody could read, focused especially on the Old Testament. He has wonderful uh, books on the importance of the Old Testament and the way it's been forgotten in pulpits and in study uh, in Christian churches so often. One of his latest books is called Honest to God Preaching, just came out in 2021, at the end of 2021. So it's a very recent uh, publication. So for all you preachers out there, you might appreciate that book that uh, that enters into some of the, the tougher topics that we have to engage uh, in preaching. So he's an excellent preacher and an excellent student of the word and an expert, especially in Old Testament texts. So it's great to have him here as we study uh, Psalm 30. So we're looking at Psalm 30 this week, which is the third week in Easter season. Make sure to subscribe if you're not already, so you never miss an episode. And as you're listening, if you're enjoying the show, hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice to pass this show on to others so they may benefit as well. If you'd like to support the show, uh, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text to become one of our patron saints. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Brent. Cool. Well, what, what version you want to I'm going to read from the time. Common English Bible since I have uh, skin in that game. So. Sounds good. Go for it. Whenever right. you're ready. Okay, so this is Psalm 30 in the Common English Bible, a psalm, a song for the temple dedication of David. I exalt you, Lord, because you pulled me up. You didn't let my enemies celebrate over me. Lord, my God, I cried out to you for help and you healed me. Lord, you brought me up from the grave, brought me back to life from among those going down to the pit. You who are faithful to the Lord, sing praises to him. Give thanks to his holy name. His anger lasts for only a second, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay all night, but by morning, joy. When I was comfortable, I said, I will never stumble. Because it pleased you, Lord, you made me a strong mountain. But then you hid your presence. I was terrified. I cried out to you, Lord. I begged my Lord for mercy. What is to be gained by my spilled blood, by my going down into the pit? Does dust thank you? Does it proclaim your faithfulness? Lord, listen and have mercy on me. Lord, be my helper. You changed my mourning into dancing. You took off my funeral clothes and dressed me up in joy so that my whole being might sing praises to you and never stop. Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. 
The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word, for the way that your word has sprung forth as your creative word, as your word of the covenant, your word of promise, promises made, promises kept. And so, Father, as we encounter these words that are both your words to us and our words to you, we ask that you would grant us the measure of grace necessary to receive this word with faith, that uh, Brent and I and all who are listening in might have our eyes and ears and hearts opened to uh, encounter the word of God as it moves among us even now. So, Father, may this psalm become our prayer, and may our conversation about it rest not solely on the ingenuity of study and knowledge, though we are grateful for knowledge and understanding that's been imparted through study, uh, but that whatever insight uh, may be gained this hour, that it would be guided by your Spirit so that we may carry the living Word in our own spirits. So we pray this all in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Yeah. So, Brent, uh, what do you notice in this text before? I'm sure you've noticed it a million times and helped translate it yourself. But uh, since that's your skin in the game with the CEB, I assume. <laughs> that's right. I did. Was the Psalms in your uh, where you worked uh, in particular, or I had final editor? I had final academic uh, editor responsibilities for the Psalms, so I wasn't uh, the two initial translators, but I was the final translator, as it were. So two great psalm scholars worked on the CEB Psalms, Clint McCann and William Brown, and uh, they did great work. But then I uh, came along after them and sort of adjudicated matters after them and uh, had a hand in it as well. Took most of the most of the summer, as I recall. I don't remember what summer now it was, but I spent uh, every day for the summer working through the psalms. And uh, so the CEB is... Uh, Close to my heart, I did 11 or so of the books of the Old Testament in terms of editing and then was lead translator on Deuteronomy. So I'm fond of it and think it's a useful translation. Uh, at least that's my, that's what they pay me to say, at least. Or they yeah, did well, pay me. There you go. <laughs> well, I mean, we just had, for our listeners, just a couple weeks ago, we had a uh, Aubrey Buster. I don't know if yeah. you've met her. She's a, yeah. She's, so she's a student scholar. of mine at uh, Emory. Yeah. Oh, you're right. You were still at Emory. Duh. Of course. And she chose the CEB. So there's a oh, little good. shout out. For good. You. Oh, good. And good. Uh, our, uh, uh, Larissa Levicheva, um, yeah. often chooses it. So, yeah. um, you've got some, we've got some, uh, corroborating, uh, testimony. Yeah. Uh, but excellent. no, I love it too. So, Marisa was a student of mine too back at Asbury way in the day, back in the day. Oh, of course. Yeah. 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 Well, there was one translation choice I really liked. So like, can we just start there and I can ask you about it real quick? Since we have not the author, but the editor uh, <laughs> of right. the translation. But uh, so in verse uh, five in the English, you had that moment in CB, there's no verb here. The CEB just chose to not then supply a verb. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Preserves the poetry, I'm guessing, is part of the... Um, can you read uh, six, uh, verse 5 again in the, yeah. the CEB? So his anger lasts for only a second, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay all night, but by morning 
comma joy exclamation mark yeah man that comma joy just like my heart sprang because yeah. like the guts to not supply a verb when there isn't one is <laughs> yeah. is is great and yeah. i don't know i what, what what was the thing what's your thinking there when you when you make a move like that well, um, I don't know if I can of, take. I don't know if I can take personal credit for it. It's probably good. Oh, of course to, not. But Brown or or McCann. But you know, it was an issue when you think about translating. How much, especially translating in the Common English Bible, where the goal was accessibility. You know, if you have the issues that you know your listeners will be familiar with with regard to the gapping of verbs. You know, in one line there's a verb, and the next line the verb is gap you know, it can be supplied because of the way Hebrew poetry works and the parallelism that one is sort of to supply the verb, the verb continues on, it's still sort of active, as it were. So you can do that. But of course, when you do that, you are supplying something that's not in the Hebrew text. So if we were part of the King James version, we would apply it, we would supply it, but we'd put in italics to indicate to the reader that it wasn't actually there. Um, but I think sometimes, at least occasionally, if you leave it out, you can accomplish a kind of freshness or immediacy. And I, I liked that, too. I'm, exactly. glad you, I'm glad you brought the conversation to that verse, because I, I think that is a, a, a very nice turn of phrase in the CEB's version of, of verse five, for sure. And in this case, the, the verb might not work if you just kept the same verb. That's right in place because it's weeping may endure for a night Mm -hmm. or for a night may endure weeping. Right, right, right. (laughs) But in the morning joy. And so usually it's joy comes in the morning is is a common translation. Right. Right. But you don't have that. I mean, that verb's not anywhere in there. There's no No, reason to say it comes. That's right. And to, to lodge or to stay doesn't really work, does it? So the I think that's probably the genius behind the original translation and the in the current form too is that there's a kind of immediacy which underscores the poetic content. The form follows the content, or the content follows the form, doesn't it? That uh, in the morning, just like dawn breaks, suddenly joy. You don't need a verb. It's just like the sun coming over the mountains or breaking through the trees. It's a immediacy. And that's signaled by the poet by not even needing a verb. Just put the uh, noun there right after the other one and, and let's make it happen. The only thing I would long for more would be a dash instead of a comma. But I'll, I'll, <laughs> oh, ta- yeah, I'll take yeah, a comma. Yeah, that might be even better. We did get the exclamation mark in there, though. You know, that's, uh, oh, it's an exclamation mark? Oh, yeah, that's is, wonderful. I don't yeah. have CB open in front of me, so that's, <laughs> that's lovely. Oh, that's great. I mean, at the very least, when you have a very famous quote like verse 5 is, mm-hmm. Just adjusting word order alone can sometimes help us notice things we haven't noticed before. Mm-hmm. So. I think a similar kind of uh, you know immediacy happens in verse seven. Okay, which in maybe even, it's maybe even more immediate in the NRSV than it is in the CEB. But you know, but then you hid your presence. Well, because it pleased you, Lord, you made me a strong mountain. But then you hid your presence. I was terrified. Uh, there's a kind of, um, you know, juxtaposition there, or, you know, the term is uh, parataxis, no conjunction, no, and I was terrified, then I was terrified. It's an immediate kind of shift, so that joy comes immediately and unexpectedly in verse five. But as the psalmist recollects the, the time of dismay in the past, it's also immediate and unexplained. And the NRSV has it, you hid your face, semicolon. I was dismayed, you know, and it's, it's again, this immediate 
juxtaposition of, you know, everything seemed to be going well when I was like a strong mountain. I felt secure and settled, but then all bets were off. And that, that immediacy, the quickness of it all happens within, you know, the poetic line. And that's really true to life because those those disjunctive moments happen so quickly. We're, we're always unprepared for them. They're never, they never kind of, you know, you never slide into them. You, they, they come abruptly and unexpectedly and unwelcome as well. Yeah. So it's, it's the lack of a conjunction, both before the statement, you've hid your face mm-hmm. and the fact that it troubles me. Right. Yeah. And the temptation to supply a conjunction could appear in either of those spots, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. And in fact, you might, you know, be tempted if with a conjunction to draw certain kinds of causality or be more certain about the relationship of the lines. Uh, Because you hid your face, I was troubled. Right. That's right. And so the paratactic nature of, of poetry that it's spare on these sorts of things, it doesn't always spell out relationships of causality is one of the difficult things about poetry, but also one of its gifts because it invites, you know, a different kind of, um, well, it invites multiple interpretations of that, or at least it, it doesn't reduce down to one. I think that's an evocative, evocative and generative aspect of poetry. No, that is absolutely beautiful. Yeah, that's, that's really good. So do you sense a kind of narrative flow in the psalm as a whole or do you feel like it's kind of going back and forth i want to i want to withhold my tendency to impose a kind of narrative structure on you know things that aren't stories right at the same time do you sense there's a kind of flow are there chunks to this to this psalm yeah i think there are chunks and i mean i think it it yeah i think it is is, i i resonate with your point because you know i Myself have uh, been occupied recently of, you know, being somewhat dubious about narrativizing everything and wanting to give poetry its proper due and all this sort of jazz. But uh, poems can at least have an incipient, incipient kind of narrative or, a, you know, a, a kind of narrativizing aspect or tell a kind of story. I think it's important for us always to remember, though, it's a different kind of story than like a regular story. Um, and especially with a very short poem, this kind of poem, you know, by typical Western understandings of poetry would be a lyric. Uh, and the lyric poems, by definition, are non-narratival. But that being said, you know, maybe a more adequate understanding of it is less via the canons of, of Western poetry and more via the kind of emic categories of the Psalms themselves. And this is classically understood as a song of thanksgiving. And the songs of thanksgiving, the difference they manifest from, say, hymns of praise or lament psalms is that they look back on trouble resolved. And so you do definitely have a resolution of something in the past. And so in 30, it's, it's really actually the quintessential psalm to indicate these sorts of movements within the Psalter and within the life of faith. And this is Walter Brueggemann's typology. So shout out to, to Professor Brueggemann, who recently celebrated his 89th birthday. But if you, if you begin with one through three, you have this initial address to, to the Lord 
And then you have an address to the community uh, who are sort of listening in to the psalmist in four through five. But then you have a recollection of the past. And that past is everything was great for a minute. I was comfortable. I won't stumble. It pleased the Lord. The Lord made me a strong mountain. But that, and that's what, what uh, Brueggemann calls the season of orientation, when life is all great and perfect or pretty much. And these, this season of life is the, the season of life that's most reflected in the hymns of praise, the great psalms uh, that celebrate God's glory or praise God's glory for God's goodness and God's reliability. And that's sort of indicated in retrospect, like the psalmist now looks back on this. I was there at one point. But then in the middle of verse seven, it just happens that fast. You hid your face. I was dismayed. I I was terrified. And that's the shift from orientation to disorientation. And the disorientation uh, leads immediately to the psalmist crying out, begging for mercy, bargaining with God. You know, why should I die, Lord? Uh, You won't get my praise. Have mercy on me. Help me. That's the season of disorientation that's being looked back upon. Those, that season of disorientation, Brueggemann says, is mostly uh, housed within the laments, the great lament psalms, like 13 and 22 and all the rest. And then verse 11 happens. Verse 11 happens now suddenly is the season of new orientation, a post-disorientation life. You changed my morning into dancing. So suddenly life is different. And so a huge change has happened between verse 10 and verse 11. And that changes this change of trouble resolved. Um, you know, the, whatever happened in the past that was so bad, God hiding God's face, me being terrified or dismayed, that it's now praise God in the past. Now you changed my morning into dancing. So it turns out that in fact, by morning, joy happened after all, you know. So there is a kind of story, as it were, or at least a, a recollection in the poet's uh, psalm about life before, during, and after a major problem. And that leads to the psalmist to praise and thank. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. That's such a clear, it was almost kind of perfect to kind of recognize the limits of a kind of narrative structure, but then also, because in some ways it has a quasi liturgical even structure, the opening yeah, verses. that's right. Kind of that's invoking right. God and then calling a call to worship. And then within that, then there is this story that's told. And then in this great way, the way the poetry can do that would create confusion in a more narrative setting. It's still in the present tense. It's like, it it feels like you're, you're back in it all of a sudden, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah, Like you're bleeding right now, which might be in a, in a communal worship setting. It could be that some people are in the disorientation season, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, And they feel that portion of the psalm as the present tense for them. Yeah. Even though as a whole, the psalm presents this as having been resolved. Yeah. Yeah. It may not be for every, every chanter of this psalm as it were. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, maybe it's the liturgical a moment in verse four and five. Well, also to the, the address to the Lord in one, one through three, but then the address to the worshiping community in four to five Maybe that's actually what makes this psalm not narrative. Like maybe if you only had six through 12, you know, you'd say, ah, it's a narrative poem, you know, but these other elements sort of take it out of just narrative time and now put it into liturgical time. 
and also yeah it's a clever way to put it yeah liturgical present too you know um with the lord yes and in that sense it might be you might say six through eleven Mm-hmm. Because then in 12, though it's yeah. not a call to others to worship, it's now, Yeah, I mean, that could be narrative, that could be the narrative time of, I made this vow that I was going to sing now. Mm-hmm. But of course it's that narrative, it's that liturgical present of now I'm doing it. Like yeah. I literally just did it. Yeah. So there's a little bit of a, a kind of final yeah. moment there that kind of brings yeah. it back into liturgical time in the last line, maybe would be maybe one way of putting it. Yeah, I think so. So um, Bergamon's t- typology is, is, is pretty well known and one of his more important contributions, and he's made many. But um, it's, a, I think, intriguing to note that in his book-length version of this argument, The Message of the Psalms, a theological commentary, when he talks about each of the three major types of psalms and the, orient, the, or, the seasons of life, so the, the hymns of praise for uh, the season of orientation, he uses Psalm 30, little snippets of verses from Psalm 30 to illustrate as the kind of part heading. So, you know, when I was comfortable, I said, I will never stumble. Uh, you, you made me a strong mountain is for the season of orientation and hymns of, of praise. Then you hid your face. I was dismayed. That's the lament Psalms and the uh, season of disorientation. And then uh, you changed my morning into dancing. That's the a part heading for the new orientation and songs of Thanksgiving. So in this one Psalm, you see, as it were, the Psalter as a whole, the, the seasons of life and the microcosm, it's kind of a microcosm of those movements of life and those major Psalm types all sort of happening in this one Psalm. And it's really interesting to think about that because that's happening in that central section. But as you said, John, you got it surrounded by this liturgical business so that, you know, God is addressed and the, and the human community is addressed. And so it's all sort of taken up within this larger framework of praise of God and address to God and encouragement to other people to, to praise God. And so the psalmist's own life becomes a testimony. It's kind of a witness to, to everyone else. So I, I think it's a really wonderful psalm in that regard. Yeah. Oh, man, that. That structural analysis was fantastic for me and for our listeners, I'm sure, and also just great summaries of other tools that we'll keep using as we study the Psalms all year this year on the show. So that's so great. Let's take a quick break and come back and explore it some more. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Brent Strawn. First time having you on the show, but uh, so great to have you. Yeah, so this is, uh, we're looking at Psalm 30. I'll go ahead and read it again so it's fresh in our ears. This is from Robert Alter's translation, uh, which our listeners have gotten used to. I've been reading from it a lot uh, when we've been going through the Psalms. So, Psalm, Song for the Dedication of the House for David. I shall exalt you, Lord, for you drew me up, and you gave no joy to my enemies. Lord, my God, I cried to you, and you healed me. Lord, you brought me up from Sheol, gave me life from those gone down to the pit. Hymn to the Lord, O his faithful, acclaim his holy name. But a moment in his wrath, life in his pleasure, at evening one beds down weeping, and in the morning glad song. 
As for me, I thought in my quiet days, never will I stumble. Lord, in your pleasure, you made me stand mountain strong. When you hid your face, I was stricken. To you, O Lord, I call, and to the master I plead, what profit in my blood, in my going down deathward? Will dust acclaim you? Will it tell your truth? Hear, Lord, and grant me grace. Lord, become helper to me. You have turned my dirge into a dance for me, undone my sackcloth, and bound me with joy. O oh, let my heart hymn you, and be not still. Lord my God, for all time, I will acclaim you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Yeah, so we can really go any direction you like. What's, uh, what's, uh, at the heart of this sort of prayer that he kind of recalls? Uh, I'm thinking of verse nine. Yeah, really just nine. I guess it's kind of a long one. So I thought it was two verses, but it's a. Yeah. um, Yeah. What what do you think is kind of at the heart of that verse, that little prayer that's recollected there? Well, I mean, the, the thing that jumps out at me just because I've, I've thought about it a bit lately in some other work I've been doing on the Psalms is this uh, notion of the pit. So, you know, the psalmist is speaking and whether this speech is, you know, realistic or, or highly metaphorical or kind of imagistic, we don't know, you know, but, uh, but the, psalmist is at least speaking of you know in the in the ceb here spilling of blood going down to the pit dust and that that all that language is language of death you know violence and passing on being deceased this pit language is a metaphor for sheol the afterlife the grave sometimes it's translated by certain english translations in some contexts as the grave uh, though there's also a word for grave. Um, it's, it occurs in parallel lines and parallel position with Sheol. So the, the psalmist, you know, has this, and, and not just this psalm, but the psalmist, capital P for, the, for all the psalms, has a concern uh, with, with Sheol, with death, with uh, the pit and the grave. And it's, it's present here. And so this Recently, I've been thinking about this a bit, especially with reference to Psalm 88 and the work of Bill Brown, who uh, has written one of my favorite, two of my favorite books on the Psalms, Seeing the Psalms, and then most recently, Deep Calls to Deep. But Seeing the Psalms, Brown lays out sort of two fundamental metaphors in the Psalter, one being refuge and one being pathway. And these are sort of, as it were, the ethical, primary ethical metaphors that one sort of walks the path in this in the Psalter and seeks refuge in God. And that these are sort of two primary root metaphors that govern the Psalms. And I think that's quite right. But I think if we wanted to add a third, we might say there's a third and that's the pit. And the pit is a threat to the path. I mean you can fall into the pit while you're walking on the path. If there's a pit along the way or you're not or you're not on the path, you'll fall into a pit. And also, if you're not, the pit is low and, you know, the miry clay and all that, and the refuge is high and lifted up. 
And so these are antithetical, the pit and the, and the refuge that is God, you know. And the psalmist here is complaining about the pit. We know in verse 3 already that God rescues from the pit. He brought me back to life from among those going down to the pit. So we know that this is because it's a Thanksgiving psalm. It's looking back on trouble resolved. But when the psalmist recollects the trouble that was not yet resolved in the moment, it's all about the pit. It's about the threat of death. It's about the threat of violence. And the psalmist sort of bargains with God and implies that once you're gone, you don't have any any good juice to give to God. You know, you don't have any praise to give to God. And that's a comment that's not that's found not only here, but elsewhere in the Psalms, particularly in 88. And that's led to all kinds of questions and speculation on the part of scholars with regard to ancient Israelite notions of death in the afterlife. Did they have any, namely? And it seems like in in the basis of of texts like this, oh, well, they didn't, or it's underdeveloped. Um, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure about that. But it is clear that at least in this psalm and some others, the psalmist bargains with God, that there's something better about a life that's lived in praise than a life that's sort of silenced by the pit and the grave. And so that's that's kind of what I think is going on in in verse nine there. And I think there's more to say about the pit than that, but that at least is what's going on, I think, in this verse. Oh, that's so good. Well, I'm with you on the underdeveloped. I mean, talk about smuggling in normative claims, you know, <laughs> right? I mean, that's that's assuming a lot about the, the natural progression of thought and you're not there yet. Right. Uh, I'd be more inclined to say this is just the way they talk about it and there's something to it. Right. Um, is there, are there two different words? So the word for pit in nine is, uh, I'll say this poorly with great shame before the person who first taught me Hebrew, uh, <laughs> but it's, it's shahat, right? That's right. Good. Um, and is that the, that's the pit term that you were discussing more broadly right. in Psalms, right? Right. So is the word for pit in, it looks like, is it bore mm-hmm. or bore? Mm-hmm. That's right. In three. Mm-hmm. So are these two different? Are these two different words for pit, and do they have different significances? They are. Uh, they not are to two camp different. On pit forever, but yeah, no, that's right. There, there are two different words for pit, and uh, there's even a third that some people say is is a is another sort of adjunct or or related term. Um, but shachat and bor are the two main ones, and uh, they are different words, just like we might say pit and hole or something like that. But they semantically ditch ditch, right but um, semantically they they seem to relate to one another um and in the case of the parallelism and whatnot in some psalms at least uh seem to be largely synonymous or at least you know speaking about about the same sort of end point you know or or uh, location but I think, you know, the problem, so the interesting thing is that, you know, there's been recent, more recent discussions. And so for listeners, it's sort of been a standard critical position for, for many, many years to think Israelites didn't have any conception of life after death or very disworldly. And what you get when you start getting that, it's in the later material. Is it there in Job 19? Maybe, maybe not. Depends on who you ask. Uh, What about Ezekiel 37, the dry bones? Well, okay, but they're not really, it's like an image, it's a vision. But 
Daniel 12. Yeah, Daniel 12. That seems to be pretty clear that the saints are resurrected in, in Daniel 12. But most people date that quite late. And by the time you get to the New Testament, you have uh, what appears to be a fairly robust doctrine of, of resurrection, but not everybody believes in it. The Sadducees, for instance, right? So uh, what's going on with ancient Israel? Do they believe in something or not? And it's been sort of standard fare in light of texts like Psalm 30, verse 9. Now, no, they didn't have any robust thing. That's why they don't want to die, because they're saying once you die, you can't praise. But again, there's, this is the, the jury's out in my mind, at least, um, or at least my jury's out. Mitchell DeHood, who wrote the Anchor Bible commentary uh, on the Psalms back in the day, actually was famous, if not infamous, for saying that he thought the Psalms had a robust doctrine of life after death. He hasn't been followed much on that in the Psalms, but there has been some recent work by people like Christopher Hayes and John Levinson, which say, you know, actually, it seems that the Old Testament has more awareness of uh, an afterlife and whatnot, then people have been want to think. And you can talk about it as maybe being influenced uh, by just the theological claim that God is the God of life. You might also say that, uh, you know, next door neighbors to Israel was ancient Egypt, which has had a robust understanding of life after death for millennia. <laughs> so it's, it's unlikely that they weren't aware of the doctrine or the concept or the idea. So I think that, uh, even here, in the case of the pit in the Psalms, one can say that, yeah, it's a, it's a very real threat. The psalmists don't want to experience the pit. You might say it's the Gethsemane of the Psalter. But it isn't the final word, which is intriguing. And that's where 88 um, is so important, because 88 uh, is a place where the, psal- the pit occurs a, a number of times, at least twice, but has a just overall a very dark and depressing tenor about it, the tone of it. It's the, it's certainly the saddest of the Psalms. And it, I can think could be seen as sort of the the ultimate low point in the Psalter, the nadir. You could say that Psalm 88 is the pit of the Psalter. And it's, (laughs) uh, it's also right kind of about the middle of the Psalter, but it's not the last Psalm. And it's interesting that as low as it is, the Psalter begins to creep out of the pit, to use the, the language of Psalm you know, 130, from the depths I cried. The psalmist of 88 is crying, not from out of the depths, not moving out of, but resolutely within the depths. But the Psalter starts creeping out of the depths. And I, I think 88 can be seen as the most pronounced you know, attempt of, this, of the pit to overwhelm the life of faith. And it almost does, but it doesn't. Because 89 comes along and starts creeping out and 90 creeps out a little further. And then 91 is fully out there. I mean, and, and back on the, on the path of praise. So the pit is a, is a danger. It's real. You can't underestimate it, but it doesn't have the last word. Just like Good Friday doesn't have the last word in the passion narratives. Yeah, which and those passion connections are very fitting given that even just the phrase of the the most famous line probably from this psalm in christian circles the sadness and sorrow for the for the night but joy in the morning i mean it's very hard to not feel the resonances there with the mm-hmm. with the narration of uh the darkness on good friday and the the dawn the resurrection associated with the morning right it's kind of it's just kind of like 
Hey, and, and actually, and that's maybe a good transition to our next segment because I only use the lectionary as a, as a jumping off point so that I'm not, uh, just shaping this show around my own idiosyncratic <laughs> interests, but so I'm not wedded to it, but, uh, but I mean, this is, this is the Psalm assigned for the, the third Sunday of Eastertide. Mm. So, and I don't think that's on accident. I mean, mm-hmm. this is, this has some, um, some Easter resonances, yeah. uh, as a whole right. and in some of its key moments. And then the, the death language, the pit then becomes essentially here. And it's kind of really fitting again, 88 is different. 88 is a little more declarative and that's what part of what makes it darker, mm-hmm. but it is more of, of a question here. It's, it's a question directed to God, you know, what is the dust going to praise you? And a possible answer to that is, well, if I make it come back to life, then it can. Yeah, that's <laughs> like, right. I mean, that's, that's, a, right. that's a possible divine answer. That's right. But that doesn't mean that has to be consciously in the mind of the author, the original author of the psalm. That's, right. that's not what we're asking. That's right. But in its canonical context, well, that's a that's a that's a plausible answer, and it's certainly the New Testament answer. But even the New Testament answer isn't. Yeah, you can keep you can keep praising him in the pit. Mm-hmm. It's like no, no, no. We're get, the pit. The pit's going to be defeated. That's that's what's gonna. Right. Uh, you're going to be, you're going to be raised out of the pit and therefore speak. So in some sense, the, the notion that the pit and the dust doesn't praise God is not completely ruled out by the doctrine of resurrection, right? It's, it's sort of affirmed and then, and then, a, then a second move is made beyond that, you know, a kind that's, of life. That's right. That's right. I think that's that. Uh, that is at least part of of Levinson's point, as I understand it. And he himself is a Jewish scholar. That you know, eternal life or resurrection is different than sort of the immortality of the soul, in the sense that you know, the immortality of the soul, uh, you know, uh, assumes the eternal nature of something within the created uh, being that's eternal regardless whereas resurrection is something other than that resurrection is the decision of god to make something eternal to make something immortal and that's that's a different thing it's not an essential quality it's a gifted quality and that according to levinson as i understand him that god has that power as the god of life even in ancient israelite uh perceptions and in a sense, has to exercise that power to be consistent with the divine self as the God of life. And I don't think Dehud is completely wrong in finding some of these texts in the Psalms as suggesting just that, you know, I mean, even already in 30, you brought me back to life from among those going down to the pit. Well, you say, well, he was just like in the emergency room, you know, he wasn't yet in the morgue. You know what I mean? But but in the sense, once you're sick in, in the psalmist conception in the ancient Israelite, you're you're in the realm, you know, you're in the realm of death. You're you're there, you're you're heading there. And so to be rescued from that is a movement from death to life, you know. And so God has that kind of power. Or uh in 33, Psalm 33, uh 18 and 19, the the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Well, you know, does the parallelism mean just, oh, they're about, you know, they're hungry because they're to deliver their soul from death is a stunning question. You know, I mean, stunning statement. It's not, it's not necessarily reducible solely to its parallelistic 
partner, you know? So, yeah, I think what you're saying is, is very much um, right. And there is obviously a lot of resonance within the Christian imagination with Christ as the potential speaker of this psalm. But there's another sense in which, yeah, you know, even the dust can praise if it's if it's brought back. I mean, it's that's Ezekiel thirty-seven. You know, can these bones live? Yeah, that's yeah. can oh, these bones live? And and Ezekiel has a fantastic answer. That's right. Yeah, only you know, Lord. Only, only right? you like know. It's, yeah, it's yeah, kind of right. your call. Yeah, that's right. You, you know, you. That's not the, no. That's not yes or no. It's <laughs> that's right. It's a kind of punt, but it's a theologically fraught one. In the in the Hebrew, it's you know the it says you know, but it but it repeats the uh, pronoun, which you don't have to do in Hebrew because that pronoun's already embedded in the in the verbal. Ah, form. you yourself know. Yeah, you yourself know. Which which you know maybe even this might go too far, but I, I, at least I I'd like to think that a, an appropriate paraphrase is you know you know I don't I don't, but you may you know you may know, but I certainly don't. Yeah. Well, I. I've been wondering if like I so I there was a there was a period in my life when it seemed as though I was being taught that the Old Testament answer to can these bones live is no. Mm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and the New Testament answer is yes. Right. And it's and I've been shifting to kind of think, well the the be- the best Old Testament answer is well you know, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. And the New Testament answer isn't yes either. The New Testament answer is he is risen. Yeah. yeah. And he is risen indeed. That's, that's right. That's the it's not a a generic claim about life after death, you know. Yeah. It's a statement yeah. about this strange event mm-hmm. uh of Christ's resurrection that gives us hope that um this is not a one-time event but in fact a promise of of something for all for us all but it's still a kind of variation on the you know yeah that's you know, right it's it's not a total contradiction and a, and a variation on we don't know or we don't understand or we can't accomplish it ourselves i mean that's the uh, that's where again bergamon's work has helped me because in his understanding of the way the psalms flow in the seasons of life, you know, it's easy to understand the shift from orientation to disorientation because we've experienced that. You know, it takes one call in the middle of the night, it takes a bad diagnosis, it takes the death of a friend or a loved one, and we we're in the we're in that season of disorientation. The tricky part is how you go from disorientation to new orientation. You know, how how does that happen? And Bergamon says, you know, kind of who knows, you know, only God knows. It's a, it's a, it's a novum. It's a theological new thing that he describes as akin to the gospel. That one minute the tomb is got Jesus's body in it. And the next minute it's empty. You know, we had thought he was the one to deliver Israel. And then he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. And that's actually, I think at work in Psalm 30, um, you know, weeping may stay all night, but by morning, joy. And how? You know, we don't we don't know how does that how does that happen? It's you can't exactly describe it. It's not susceptible to the canons of science or rationality or logic. Only only, only theo logic. You know, when you go from verse ten, where the psalmist is say, "Lord, listen and have mercy on me." Lord, be my helper in the dark night of the soul, or praying in Gethsemane, and then suddenly you changed my mourning into dancing. You took off my funeral clothes and dressed me up in joy. You don't, you can't really say exactly how that happened, but it happened. You know, 
there's a song I sang in, as a kid in my church growing up uh, that was called, uh, you know, he touched me, God touched me. And oh, the joy that floods my soul. Something happened. Now I know God touched me and made me whole. But that something happened, even that modern hymn can't really put its finger on it. Something happened. I don't, but I don't know what it had, something. But, but now I know God touched me and made me whole. And so that, that kind of transformative moment is not reducible to kind of um, maybe even the canons of normal human knowledge or cognition. It's something beyond that. It's this movement, mov- movement from the, it's the gospel movement and the gospel moment. And so what happens there in the Christ event you're talking about in Passion Narrative and Easter is already happening, of course, here in the, in the, uh, in the Psalter and in Psalm 30, you know? Yeah, which implies it's not, you know, it's not a, a sort of square peg in a round hole right. to bring these psalms into conversation with that. Right. That event. So let's just pause right now here towards the end and just explore some sermon starters. I know that all our listeners who might be uh, thinking about preaching or teaching on texts like this have already tons to chew on. Mm. So I'll just ask you simply, if you were being called to to preach on this psalm, maybe it was the last minute, bulletins were already printed, Psalm 30 is already the text, you know. <laughs> What would be your angle? What what would be your focus? I mean, obviously we can draw on all the the insights you've given us today, but what would be your kind of focus of your energies as you'd continue to study and prepare? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, we've we've raised a number of them, I think, that are worthy of exploration. If I could maybe begin with cautionary notes first, um, I think... Please, that's great. (laughs) I, I think the psalm... This psalm, its its superscription is an is intriguing uh, to me. It's a song for the temple dedication of David or for David or whatever. And I've I've uh, experienced a lot of psalm sermons in my life that have been sort of obsessed with locating a psalm within David's life. And sometimes the psalms, uh, you know, have a long superscription that does that, like Psalm three. But this one doesn't do that. And also, it actually doesn't make sense with David's life, because if it is, in fact, for the temple dedication, that's not finished until he dies. So, the, uh, so I would encourage preachers not to be obsessed with David in, the Psalm, in Psalm 30. Um, I think that's kind of to miss the point. But what may not be to miss the point is to wonder how a psalm like this could be used for the temple dedication. Why, why, why would a psalm like this be used? For any sort of dedication, you know, of, of something important, especially something devoted to uh, the worship of the Lord. Um, that's kind of an intriguing thing to wonder about, that in fact, when one comes together in the, to dedicate something like uh, building in honor of God, or when one dedicates even, you know, an hour to the worship of the Lord, uh, Psalm 30 suggests that some things should be present. Uh, praise of God, injunction to the community also to praise, and reasons for that praise that can get quite personal um, in terms of the deliverance of the Lord, which then um, ends up again in praise and in a, in a, in a life dedicated to praise. I will give thank, thanks to you forever. So that's sort of, those elements could be seen as kind of important elements, not, not necessarily a pattern, uh, though perhaps in some cases that, 
but uh, some sort of uh, you know elements that are constitutive, useful to think about the dedication of a building or a moment in time or a life uh, to God could have these sorts of movements that Psalm 30 evidences. So that, that's one thing I would say, and that's different than just fixating on David and when he wrote it and if it was a Tuesday night or not, and what he had for dinner the night before. Yeah. Like you said, sometimes those inscriptions are, are illuminating, but yeah. it's got to be, got to be careful with that and not make too other, much out of it. The other cautionary thing I think is that despite the real, you know, in Christian with Christian ears and eyes, despite the real resonance with the, with the uh, passion narratives and the, I don't think preachers need to feel constrained to make that too quickly or too mechanistically. Um, I think it can be sort of yeah. silly that the, the you know, it, it, it's in other words, the psalm can speak toward the life of Christ without speaking about the life of Christ. Um, isn't it? Well, that's a helpful distinction. Yeah. Isn't it yeah. remarkable? So in other words, I might say something like this. Isn't it remarkable after working, say, if I work through the psalm and think about it in, in terms of the life of faith, my life of faith, the life of the faith of the congregation, I could see myself making a move towards the New Testament in Christ by saying, isn't it remarkable, but actually not even surprising at all to find that Jesus Christ also experienced these things. Uh, remarkable and not surprising because uh, here is, uh, here is the, the perfect one uh, experiencing this. This is remarkable, but not surprising because this is, this is fully human and fully God. And so it's not surprising to sort of see Christ's life also mapped onto thir- Psalm 30 or Psalm 30 mapped onto Christ's life, which suggests a number of things. One of which is that, you know, our lives, no less than Christ, will not be lived without this experience of the pit. You know, even Christ doesn't get through life without needing some lament psalms. Uh, and so that's that. Um, but also that, that, the life with God doesn't end with the pit, you know, um, from there he, you know, in the third day he rose again from there, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the resurrection of the body. So I think that that's, uh, preachers, even, you know, devout Christian preachers who care deeply about the new Testament don't have to feel constrained to make things mechanistic because I fear when we do that, it becomes a kind of, illustration about Jesus, which we probably already know, A, and B, doesn't have a lot of significance Monday through Friday. Um, and we need something that sort of will, will help us get through Monday to Friday, all of our moments where the pit is impinging on us. Um, and uh, so I think those are two pitfalls, oh, pitfalls that I'd avoid over, <laughs> over, over obsession with David on the one hand or over obsession with the son of David on the other. Uh, and I would want to get into, I think, the dynamics of, you know, how quickly we move from seasons of security to seasons of insecurity and how quickly also we can move from insecurity back to moments of praise. And that the psalm invites us to do that, um, even in its structure, even if we're not fully there yet, it, it invites us to contemplate whether it's our life or someone else's life, oh, what must it be like to be suddenly dismayed with God's face hidden? And then to contemplate also for ourselves or others, what might it be like when our funeral clothes uh, 
get all taken away and folded up and stored in the in the closet and get dressed up in joy again. Yeah, I'm I'm feeling like a little sermon title, a working title. Yes. Stark transitions or something oh, like that's that. Oh, nice. Yeah, Just, yeah, yeah. And and I I I looked away from you a moment because I was writing it down that phrase, isn't it remarkable but not surprising? Like to just mm. that's a that's a phrase to tuck away when making those transitions. And also to recognize that like the mistake may be thinking that we have to kind of go through the New Testament to figure out how Psalm 30 applies to our life. Right. When the, the arrow might be actually the opposite direction. Right. It might be Psalm 30 that helps us understand why this, you know, the beautiful truth of the gospel in the New Testament, mm-hmm. what that actually looks like in everyday life. Yeah. Know? Yeah. I like um, that. So it's, I it's kind of fun the way that you kind of flip that almost on its head. Yeah. That this actually helps to kind of make that, sort of play out and how it looks like in our own life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Remarkable, but not surprising. Actually, that's, that's, that's not a bad sermon. title. Either. <laughs> so no, I love it. Well, this, these are some great ideas. I, I had a lovely time talking to you today and yeah, thanks. Uh, it's been a great, reconnecting it's been after so many years. I know. I, I, I'm, I apologize that you had to take from that the class so long ago in Hebrew uh, intensive. I mean, who knows? I was early in my teaching career. It was probably horrible. So thank you for being uh, a friend despite that, no doubt. <laughs> Difficult no, it experience. was absolutely wonderful. You were, you were an excellent teacher and you were the funniest professor I've ever had. You had me... Like all the, all 22 Hebrew characters had little personalities and <laughs> I just learned so much from you and I lost a lot of my Hebrew to no, to none of your fault, uh, just cause I didn't keep it, keep it going and then kind of have spent a lot of work kind of getting it back, yeah, it was good. but it was amazing how much stuff came back because of the foundation that, that hey, you got um, you laid that right. summer. So, you, know, you got Shahat right. So, you know, it's there, it's there, it's buried in there. You got yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, it's been come. This show's helped bring it back, you know, because I, I prep for the show. And so, well, thanks so much. Thanks uh, to our listeners. We appreciate you so much. Thanks to Todd and Eric for their production work. Can't imagine doing this show without you guys. Thanks to Tom Adamson for the theme music. And thanks to our uh, listeners who support the show. If you want to become a patron saint and support the show, just go to the patreon.com uh, slash fresh text and uh, check that out. So with that said, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye.